0: Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to James chapter 4. As we look at verses 1 through 3 this evening, and let us join our hearts together in prayer, asking for the Lord's help and blessing. Father, as we have just sung, we ask again that we would have this one passion of your glory to know you now as our blessedness and reward. And as we read these penetrating and painful words in your word, may every heart be laid bare before you, the one with whom we have to do, and may our pride be broken by your majesty and by your grace. And may we draw near to the throne. That is no longer of wrath because of Jesus Christ, but one that is of grace, and may every heart here reckon with the one true God in humility, in reverence, and would you work in us what is pleasing in your sight, bless the reading and preaching and practice of your word, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. You may be familiar with Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, a biblical guide to resolving personal conflict. Ken Sandy's wife, Corlette, has written an accompanying curriculum for young people called The Young Peacemaker, teaching students to respond to conflict in God's way. Back when I was an intern here, Pastor Jeff assigned me the task of teaching from the Young Peacemaker curriculum to the middle schoolers for a couple weeks. And as I prepared for those lessons, I wondered, how in the world am I going to teach these young people about peacemaking and conflict resolution? That peacemaker model talks all about how all of us can be categorized either as peace fakers or peace breakers. A peace faker is someone who escapes from interpersonal conflict. That can manifest in denial, refusing to see that there's an issue that needs to be dealt with, blame shifting, this is your fault, not mine, running away from the issue, and even manifesting itself in the ultimate escape of suicide. A peace-breaker is someone who engages in and even loves interpersonal conflict. That can manifest in put-downs, little digs or little nitpicking comments that tear down, or gossip, Hurtful words about someone behind their back, which can often be disguised as a prayer request, can't it? Taking someone to court, physically attacking someone, and it can even manifest itself in the ultimate peace-breaking of murder. These of course are not exhaustive lists of how we respond to interpersonal conflict. We all come up with our own blend of how to break or fake peace, because our sinful hearts are very clever. Now, I don't know whether the peacemaker model talks about this, but I would say that it's best for us to understand peace faking and peace breaking not as opposite ends of the spectrum, rather they are two sides of the same coin. In other words, it's not that someone is solely a peace faker and someone else is solely a peace breaker, it's that all of us fake and break peace in different ways in one way or another. Two things that seem to be totally opposite are actually the same at the root. That goes for many seemingly opposite things. Legalism and antinomianism, at root the same thing. Deism and pantheism, idealism and pragmatism, same thing here. Peace faking and peace breaking are at root the same thing. You and I do not fall into just one type of sin. We all flip-flop back and forth between opposite sins in Jekyll and Hyde fashion. Fast forward a few years later to right now, I'm still wondering, how in the world am I going to preach on peacemaking and conflict resolution? Of course, all of us, whether we hear the word preached or we're the ones doing the preaching, we are all unworthy of such a privilege. But I know myself to be a peace faker and a peace breaker. So I offer you no expertise on this issue. I offer you weakness. And thankfully, we have the promise of him who said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. May his perfect uh, power um, be manifest in this service of worship now. So whether you would do anything to avoid another conflict again, or whether you do anything to win every conflict, let us draw near now to the throne of grace that we all may find grace to help in our time of need. Sometimes, James chapter 4 is handled a little quickly. Everything is summarized in in this first part of James 4 as a warning against worldliness, and, and that's an accurate description. But I want us to go through chapter 4 a little more slowly. Worldliness, as we'll see in this passage, is not something that's just out there, although that's true. Worldliness is also found in here, both in the church and within our own hearts, So I think moving through chapter 4 slowly will help us to focus on the worldliness within. Especially as we see how James deals with interpersonal conflict here, we'll move from diagnosis to treatment, from problem to solution to the problem. Tonight our focus will be more diagnostic, more on the descriptive side of things, because even just knowing what's wrong is helpful. Because the better you understand the problem, the better you know how good the solution is in the Lord Jesus, and better how to walk intelligently in faith and repentance. So look at this 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 evening in four ways. We'll see the root problem, the presenting problem, the wrong solution, and we'll ask, what does change look like? So first of all, the root problem. Look again there at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. James cuts right to the chase here, doesn't he? The root problem in person-to-person conflict is this. Your passions are at war within you. And then he goes on to describe the root problem in other ways there in verse 2. You desire and you covet. That is our fundamental beneath which you cannot go problem in conflict. So he uses those various words to describe that same fundamental problem, your passions, your desires, your coveting. Now let's clear something up before we move on. Those various descriptions of the problem, passions, desires, coveting, what would you make of that description? I would guess that we would look at that list and, and think, okay, I know that coveting is bad, I know we shouldn't do that, but passions Yeah, passions make sense. You're right, James. I'm a passionate person. I I feel things deeply. I get really excited about the things I want and love. And I get agitated when people threaten or thwart the things I want. Thank you for understanding how I'm I'm wired. Well, that's not what he's saying here. Our root problem is not that we get excited and passionate in the midst of conflict. It's something else. You may have a footnote there in your Bible in verse 1. A footnote next to the word passions, how it can also be translated pleasures. Now, that's an accurate translation. We're probably going to going to misunderstand such a word. We're going to understand a word wrongly. Your pleasures are at war within you. That, that word translated pleasures or passions here is the word where we get hedonism. When you think of a hedonist, you think of someone who, who lives licentiously, someone out there who does those things. James is saying we are hedonists. Our pleasures are at war within us. Now, we shouldn't misunderstand that word pleasure. I love what I love. Nobody better cross me or keep me from what I love. That's not exactly what James is talking about here, how we, we just get too excited about things we want, and we just need to, to dial it back a little bit. A better translation of this word A better way to translate that word passions there, as it comes up in verse 1 and again in verse 3, is that great old word that might make you a little uncomfortable, lusts. That's how some older translations, I think, rightly, uh, best render this word here. That is a much better word, lusts, to communicate that it is our selfishness that is the problem as our sinful hearts bump up against other sinful hearts. Even though lusts may be an uncomfortable word, it helps us not to smooth over our sin and to see it for what it is. Your lusts are at war within you. You ask wrongly to spend it on your lusts. That is the root problem in conflict. Now, notice James is not talking about the other person, what he or she or they are doing. He's talking about you. What is your part in the conflict And the answer is, you want something, you're not getting it, and so you go to battle to get it. This is a paradigm-shifting approach to conflict. James is showing us that we need to mind our business, not the business of the other person. We are really good at listing what the other person does, what they said or did, their body language, their icy demeanor. If we were half as good at examining ourselves, how many conflicts would resolve more easily. So James is calling us to focus on yourself and not on the other person. And we come up with with so many wrong explanations of what the problem is, don't we? The problem in conflict is, I'm fighting because they just don't get it, because I have a hormone issue, because I have a chemical imbalance, because that's just the way I am because my dad used to react the same way when I was a kid, because my needs aren't being met, because I've had a rough day, on and on the list goes. Well, the thing about that is that all those factors matter. James is not offering counsel in a vacuum. Your circumstances do play a part in how you live your life before the Lord and and with your neighbor. So we don't erase our circumstances, we bring them to the Lord as well. But, As important as the circumstantial factors are, they are not the root factor. The root problem lies within you, not outside of you. More than that, the root problem lies within you, not the other person. As David Powelson says, you fight for one reason, because you don't get what you want. That is what it means that our lusts are at war within us. We don't get what we want, and we will do just about whatever it takes to get what we want. Now, that's not to say that the other person involved, the person you're in conflict with, is faultless. You may very well be correct that they are at fault, that they have sinned against you. But that is not the focus here. That is not the root problem here. Only someone who truly loves you would look you square in the eye and tell you what a bad problem your problem is. And that is exactly what Pastor James is doing for us here, because he wants our eternal good. And of course, conflict does take two parties. It takes two to tango. You're not fighting with yourself. And if you are, then we should have another conversation. There are always two sides in conflict. So, what is your part in the conflict? There's no fight unless you are participating. What, why are you fighting? Because your passions are at war within you, because you long for something, and it is frustrated. And of course, this is true of all of us. Their lusts are at war within them, too. But you involve yourself in the conflict because you aren't getting what you want. We desire our glory rather than the glory of the Lord. And we'll unpack that more later. That if I love God and His glory first and foremost, I would be a peacemaker, as we saw from the end of chapter 3 last time. But if I love anything else first and foremost, I'm going to want to get that becoming a peacemaker and a peacebreaker. So that, first of all, is the root problem. Secondly, there is the presenting problem. There is a presenting problem. Again, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We'll look at the last part of verse 2 a little later. So, our root problem, our lusts, the things that we insist on having that get frustrated or thwarted, that root problem does not remain on its own. The root always bears fruit. The root problem leads to a presenting problem. Now, it's rarely plain to see what's going on within our hearts. But it's much easier to see what's going on externally. And you you can see the presenting problems that James mentions there in verse 2. Murder, fighting, and quarreling. And whether that's physical murder or not is ultimately irrelevant because James knows from the Lord Jesus that if you hate your brother in your heart, you have murdered him, as, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know how many people seek counseling because they become concerned with their lusts, waging war within them. But I suspect that many more people seek counseling because of fights and quarrels, of external problems. And that's not surprising, is it? For example, I wouldn't go to the doctor unless I had something like an irritating cough that I couldn't get rid of. I I might think that 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 is my problem. I need to get rid of this cough. But when I get to the doctor, he may discover that the reason I came to him is just a symptom of a deeper problem. Maybe that irritating cough means that I have something serious like like lung cancer, for example. I thought that I just needed some pills and I'd be on my way. But it turns out that there is a deeper problem that needed a more extreme solution. And the same thing is true of us morally, isn't it, spiritually? We tend to think that what we need in the midst of conflict are maybe some techniques, some ways to manage the conflict, or some ways to communicate more effectively. That you have your needs and, and you have a right to them, I have my needs and I have a right to those. And as long as I meet your needs and you meet mine, then we'll have a harmonious environment. There is a there's a Christian counselor who talks about need meeting in this way. He talks he tells the story of his uh, his what I would call a false reading of Jeremiah chapter two, how Je- God and Jeremiah there renders the people of God as Turning from him, turning from a fountain of living water to broken cisterns, cisterns that hold no water and that are death instead of life. And this Christian counselor reads this to say, not that people have forsaken God and that is why they have lusts raging war within them, but to say, see, people have thirst, people have needs. You have needs, don't you? You have wants, don't you? In a marriage, in a significant relationship. You should meet the other person's needs. That is not what James is calling us to here. That is just baptized selfishness. You give me what I want, and I'll give you what you want, and then we won't be in conflict. That is not what James is calling us to here. Now, of course, there is value in pausing to communicate calmly and to understand where the other person is coming from, but that's still dancing around the main issue. You're not taking personal responsibility for your sin. And it is both those things. It is your sin and it is your sin before a holy God demanding that your wants be fulfilled. And what does that mean about how we think of the Lord Jesus? If I have my needs, did he come just to give me my needs? No, he came to tell me that you want and need the wrong things, and I've come to give you myself We need a radical reorientation of what it means to think about needs. Listen again to this penetrating analysis from David Pallison. I have yet to meet a couple locked in hostility who really understood and reckoned with their motives. This passage, he talks about this passage here. This passage teaches that cravings underlie conflicts. Why do you fight? It's not because my wife or because my husband or my children or my coworker, and the list goes on. It's because of something about you. Couples who see what rules them, cravings for affection, attention, power, vindication, control, comfort, a hassle-free life, can repent and find God's grace made real to them and then learn how to make peace. We, We are easily focused on the wrong things, aren't we? It's easy to look at what the other person is doing, what's going on in the circumstance. But that is not where change happens. It's easy to see where change doesn't happen. It's painful, though, to look at our own hearts. But that's where we begin to see our need for grace and our need to humble ourselves before the Lord. Now, maybe at this point you're wondering, but I don't want wrong things. What if the things I want aren't, aren't bad? After a long day, I just want to come home and relax. What's wrong with that? After being with the kids all day, I just want some time with my husband. I just want people to think what I think about the masks and the social distancing. These are are good things, perhaps. Countless examples. What if the thing you you want isn't inherently wrong? I think of a a conflict in my own marriage early on for, for whatever reason, it was like a cat going to the vet or something. I just, there was something that I hated about getting my hair cut. I just did not want to go to the barber for some reason. I think it was probably because of, of all the time involved. So Ellie lovingly would, would cut my hair at home. And we had conflict after a while that I wanted my hair cut really short because I, did, I didn't want to have frequent haircuts. I wanted to maximize the time, not being under a blade. And she wanted to give me a more appropriate haircut because she didn't want me to look like a skinhead. <laughs> so that's fine. But I was being ruled by desire for, for time. She was being ruled by a desire to look like all, had it an altogether kind of wife. We were ruled by those desires. In themselves, they weren't wrong, but we were ruled by them. Where does this thing I want, where does it lie in my affections? Do I want this more than God himself? Is it possible that this thing rules me such that I'll do whatever it takes to get it? Do I want this thing too much? So we can want the right things, and that is an amazing testament to God's grace, isn't it? That we want even right things. The problem is, we can want the right things wrongly. And that helps us understand our conflict a little better, doesn't it? Living under Christ's lordship would bear fruit in peacemaking. The fact that I'm fighting and quarreling means that I'm being ruled by something else. So when you love even your legitimate thing more than God himself, that is what causes conflict. When you insist on getting what you want, even if what you want is good in itself, then you set yourself up on the throne in place of the Lord Jesus. Our sins against one another reveal sin against God first and foremost. So that is a presenting problem. Thirdly, the wrong solution. Look there at the end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James shows us another way of presenting our, our problem, even our root problem in the midst of conflict, that we are prayerless. If you are prayerless, then you are not depending on the Lord consciously. And if you're not depending on the Lord, you are depending on yourself. And if you're depending on yourself, then naturally you would fight and quarrel and even murder to get what you want. Prayer may be the furthest thing from our minds in the midst of conflict, but on the other hand, prayer might be readily available in conflict. But the question is, what would you pray for? This whole passage is about how we are self-centered. Even our prayers can be self-centered. Are you praying that the other person would change and understand what you want and give you what you want? Do your prayers reflect God's priorities or your own? As Calvin says, we can make God the minister of our own lusts. We often talk about how God is not a a, a divine bellboy existing to give us what we want. Even good things. How much more so would God not be the minister of our lusts? Prayer is about fellowship with the Lord. Even for its own sake. Even for not getting anything from Him except Himself. When we turn prayer into satisfying our lusts, isn't God merciful not to give us what we want? If God gave us what our lustful hearts wanted, that would be judgment. That's what you see in Romans 1. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. For God to say no to our self-centered prayers is actually grace. Augustine says, if someone intends to misuse what he receives, he will not receive it. Instead, God will pity him. So that is the wrong solution to the problem, asking God to give me what I want, since the person I'm fighting with obviously didn't get the memo to give me what I want. Well, this is a nice and bleak picture. Fourthly and finally, what does change look like? We'll see more of of change and and growth later on in chapter 4, but there are some specific ways we see how to change in this passage. One way is that it's just helpful to know what the problem is in the midst of conflict. I know that's not quite a solution, but it still helps to know. It has been helpful to me in this past week just to realize that my frustration driving down the road at home or doing whatever else, too many emails, or it could be anything. Oh, this is my fault. This is my lusts waging war within me. If your problem was outside of you, that would actually be horrible. You'd have to spend all your time and energy making other people do what you want. But since your problem is inside of you, you can take that to the Lord and actually find grace to help. Another way we see change here is is at the end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. And so one simple way Pastor James is telling us how to grow and change in the midst of conflict is to pray. Now, of course, he's shown us how not to pray in a selfish way, but how to pray in a God centered way. As we saw earlier, prayer is, is one of the farthest things from our minds in the midst of conflict. In fact, James suggests that we would sooner murder than pray to get what we want. That is how bad we are in the midst of conflict. And so, very simply, the way to begin to change in the midst of conflict is to ask God. We've already seen that back in, in chapter 1, didn't we? Chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Ask God. Humble yourself before the Lord. Ask him, not so much for some thing, some gift from him, ask him for himself. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 27, 4. Calvin helpfully comments on prayer. Let each one, as he prepares to pray, be displeased with his own evil deeds and something that cannot happen without repentance, let him take the disposition of a beggar. You were made for fellowship with the one true God, not for satisfying your lusts, to be God-centered and not self-centered. That leads to another way we see how to, how to change here. You see that reference in verse 2 to coveting. Second sentence there in verse 2, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Well, the opposite of coveting is contentment. Coveting is wanting what does not belong to you. Contentment is satisfaction with what does belong to you. Coveting is the natural workings of every single human being since the fall of Adam, except the Lord Jesus. Contentment is the supernatural workings of the Lord Jesus in those who are united to Him. And as we saw with wisdom back in James 3, we see the same thing here. There is a contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam of the Lord Jesus. How Adam embodies coveting and Christ embodies contentment. More than that, how all who are in Adam are, are enslaved to coveting and all who are in Christ are set free to be content. Adam did not want to be a servant. Christ willingly became a servant. Adam wanted to be God instead of man. Christ became man while remaining God. Adam wanted to do his own will. Christ said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 4, 34. Adam wanted to be served. Christ came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Adam blame shifted. It was my wife who made me sin. Christ said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Adam sought exaltation through self-fulfillment. Christ attained exaltation through suffering and death. We can have this mind in us by union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know those wonderful words in Habakkuk 3? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. There's no indication that this is something unique to Habakkuk as a prophet or as an old covenant believer. Even in the midst of total loss, he found contentment in fellowship with God. Now, what might that look like in conflict? Though I never win an argument or ever get my way, my desires all go unfulfilled, my needs all go unmet, no one fills my love tank, and everyone fails to understand the way I'm wired my Myers Briggs personality, my Enneagram type yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation, submitting your wants, good or bad, to him and his lordship to find true satisfaction in him. Gerhardus Voss says it so well that here lies the birthplace of that heroism of religion by which some are enabled momentarily to rise above self-interest and self-safety in the simple satisfaction of having and knowing God Himself. How could Habakkuk face total loss and be satisfied? In the simple satisfaction of having and knowing God Himself. How can you have inward joy, have contentment in conflict? How can you walk in repentance and conflict, even when it's not your fault? In the simple satisfaction of having and knowing God himself. If we insist on having our own way, having our needs, whether we really need them or not, we are going to be bitter and unsatisfied and grumbling against the Lord. Do you know that metaphor in Jeremiah 17, that the tree that is planted in streams of water, even when the heat comes, it bears fruit the circumstances are harsh, but there is true growth because it is connected to life-giving sources. If you lose all of these things, if you lose, if you lose the conflict, if you lose the, 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 the wants, the needs that you once insisted on, and you still have God, fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then mysteriously, even if you lose everything, you still have everything because you were in covenant with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. People think that James 2 is hard, faith without works is dead. That is cake compared to, to this stuff in chapter 4. This is surgery, and surgery hurts, especially when it is our pride and selfishness being operated on. What do you really fight about? What are you angry about? What do you need to apologize for, for your part in the conflict? The old Dutch pastor, Wilhelmus de Brockle, commenting more on contentment. If you have the all-sufficient one as your salvation, are you then still in need of anything else? Is he not better to you than a thousand worlds, a piece of money, or a piece of bread? We could add winning the argument. Therefore, speak and practice what the godly did. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore, will I hope in him. Lamentations 3.24. As you consider God, the only blessed God, the God of full salvation, to be your portion, turn to him in times of distress. Take refuge with him. Delight yourself in him by faith, even if it pleases him not to give you the measure of enjoying him as you would desire. This is laid away for you in eternity. Delight yourself in having him as your portion, and let this satisfy you while foregoing the things of the world which you would desire to have. May God be pleased to write his truth upon our hearts, to love what he loves in fellowship with him.